Buddy? Good morning. Good to see everyone. If you were not here last Sunday um, and did not get an envelope, a Go envelope, please find Jordan and me afterwards, and we'll get you a Go envelope. Make sure that you get one. If you heard last Sunday's message, you'll know why we gave out those envelopes. And uh, again, just a reminder, as you spend that money, to please um, don't hesitate to send me an email or Jordan or, or uh, Tyler just letting us know how you spent it, what you did. It's going to be long, just brief. We'd love to just have an idea of how people are using the money um, that God has given us. Um, so this morning, actually, let me share this too. So in a couple of weeks, probably in three weeks, we are going to start the book of Genesis together. Pretty excited. I'm excited. It's going to be a good one. Um, so we have, uh, we've got our scripture journals that we bought. I think we've got like 100 of them. So everybody will get a journal. And then we're going to begin marching through the book of Genesis, probably at a little bit of a faster pace than we did Colossians. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but that'll be a, a, something we'll probably start, like I say, probably in about three Sundays. In the meantime, <clears throat> in the next couple of weeks, um, the Lord has put on my heart that he thought it would be good for us as a church to take a few Sundays to talk about the doctrine of sin and repentance. Now, I want us to consider this doctrine of sin and repentance really under our GROW umbrella, our GROW mission as a church. I want to study this as a way of answering the question, how do I grow? How do I change? How do I pursue sanctification? How can we see our sin in a way so that we will grow and change and bring more glory to Christ? That's our aim. Now, a couple little clarifications or cautions here. Um, one, some of you are going to want, me, want to hear me say this. We're not going to turn to a church of sin hunters. Okay, That's not the aim of this. Um, I know some of us maybe have spent some time in settings where everything was a focus on sin. We're not going down that road. Um, also, just caution, clarification, um, the, one, of the, one of the purposes of this, or one of the things we've got to keep in mind, is that as we consider our sin, we must do so in an atmosphere of justification. So for seven years, really, we've talked a lot as we've worked our way through different books of the Bible about the doctrine of justification. And so we need to make sure, and I think we know as a church, that pursuing our sanctification without confidence in our justification will lead to condemnation. You guys get that? If we try to pursue sanctification without confidence in our justification, it will produce in us condemnation. So we talk about our justification. Is God declaring us righteous? It is God's declaration over us that we are righteous. And we've talked often about it being two points, two sides of a coin. That justification on the one side is us being forgiven of all of our sins. That the blood of Christ cleanses us. So you're forgiven. We're going to talk about the doctrine of sin. All the sin that's going to come to mind that we're going to talk about is already forgiven. You've been forgiven of all of your sins. But then we've talked how, how that just leaves you basically morally neutral before God. You may not have the bad stuff anymore, but you don't have the good that you need in order to stand before him as a righteous man or woman. And so what does Jesus do? Other side of the coin, after he forgives us, he then clothes us in his righteousness. So when the Father looks down on you, he sees you as perfect as he sees Christ perfect. Because you're clothed in him. All of his righteousness has been imputed to you. It has been credited to you. So forgiven and clothed, you are justified. So even at the outset of this little probably three-week series, we need to remind ourselves that you are a justified child of God. I mean, is there any better news, really, <laughs> than to say, I'm already all forgiven and completely clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So why then are we going to consider sin? So I want to give you three reasons why I think God brought this to my attention and wants us to talk about sin. And the first is this. I, I carry this concern for me and, and for us that life can be so busy. Anybody's life busy? And so full of distractions that we spend very little time considering how we've sinned and asking for forgiveness. Because life's just so full. And as a result... I think we can live trapped in patterns of sin and if they're left unaddressed long enough, end up wandering from the faith. 
And we know people who have wandered from the faith. And I think if you trace often you trace it back, it's because sins were left unaddressed, because time was not spent considering patterns of sin and learning what it means to repent. So that's reason one. Reason two, I have a concern that repentance is a long-forgotten practice in the church today. Even when the gospel is presented for salvation a lot of times, repentance is left out of the equation, let alone for believers. There is a place for repentance in the life of the believer, and I think just the church in general, I don't want to throw every church under the bus, but in general, has just forgotten what the practice of repentance looks like when you compare it to church history. And number three, reason why I think this is important for us to take time to study is this. I think a heightened awareness of sin should heighten our awareness of the boundless grace of Christ. (laughs) You know that we gather every Sunday primarily to gaze on the beauty and the love and the grace of Jesus. And you also may have noticed that our treasuring and our amazement and our awe over the beauty and love and grace of Jesus increases the more that our awareness of our sin increases. (laughs) Have you noticed that? It's so true. The more I'm aware of the fact that I'm a sinner, and then I see that God would still forgive me and Jesus would still love me, the more amazed I am at him. So there's a motive here for me of helping us explore our sin at a different level than maybe we had before for the end goal of standing more in awe of Jesus as our Savior. And I need that. My soul needs that. Because I can downplay my sin, which then downplays his grace. So with that said, I want to ask you three questions this morning. What we're going to do is totally backwards like we usually do. Usually, we, pre- we read the word, we discuss the word, we let the word examine us, and then we apply it. I'm going to come right into application, and then we're going to go to the passage of Scripture. So backwards is how we usually do it. hope that's okay for this one Sunday. So I want to begin with three questions. All and you can, Maybe to remember these, you can remember it in three words. The words I want you to think of with sin is awareness, heart, and response. I'm going to fill it out in a sentence for you. So I encourage you to take notes. First is awareness. How aware are you of the sin in your life? Just how aware are you? And then we're going to talk about, very briefly, about what is your heart attitude toward the sin in your life? So first, how aware are you? Aware of the sin in your life. Then I want to talk about our heart attitude towards the sin in your life. And then I want to talk about how do you respond to the sin in your life. So aware of our sin, our heart response to our heart attitude towards our sin, and then our response to our sin. That makes sense? I see you guys see thumbs moving, pens going. That's encouraging. I'd like to see that. Along with hearing amens and stuff. It's good to see that. So, first one. How aware are you of the sin in your life? Do you notice it? Do you see it? Do you, do you recognize it in your life? Do you see your sin and call it sin? Or do you blame others or shift things or blame it on circumstances? See, just to make sure that we're on the same page, John, 1 John 1 is true. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So reality is, there is sin there. I'm not like, this is no shocker, probably, for most of us. The question is, how aware are you of the sin that is there? Are you aware at all? Now, when I say, how aware are you of the sin in your life, I'm thinking about specific sins and not general sins. So if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, so what's, what sin are you seeking to fight right now and kill and put to death? Would you be able to give them a quick answer? How long would it take for you to articulate the sin that you're trying to put to death in your life? When I say, how are you of the sin in your life? I'm not just thinking of specific th- sins. I'm thinking also about just sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Maybe there's a fancy word for just saying, how aware are you of committing sins, of doing things that God says not to do? So God clearly's word says to not do certain things, to feel certain things, and not to think certain things. Are you aware of the times that you think those things, feel those things, and do those things that you know God tells you not to? 
So I'm thinking of things like lust and self-righteousness, anger, greed, selfishness, gluttony, laziness, wanting what others have, slander, complaining. And then there's sins of omission. How, How aware are you of failing to do the things God tells you to do? Are you aware of those things? Are you aware of the times that you fail at giving generously with a cheerful heart? Or failing to not love your neighbor, failing to love your neighbor as yourself, or failing to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Aware of all the times that you fail at, at considering how to stir up others to love and good works, or not rejoicing in suffering, or not being compassionate, or kind, or long-suffering, or showing hospitality, or not forgiving. Men, are you aware of the times that we do not love our wives the way Christ loved the church? Or ladies, are you aware of the times that you don't respect your husband or submit to him? I read an article this week that listed out 1,050 commands in the New Testament that we're to obey. 1,050. I was like, wow, that is a lot of commands in the New Testament. And they make up all these issues of the things we're to do and that we don't do and the things we should do that we don't do and these sins of omission and commission. So I'm I'm thinking about all these different categories of sin, and I'm also thinking about not just big sins, but I'm thinking about the small ones, or what we would call small ones, the acceptable ones, the ones that no one would ever know about unless you told them. So the church will talk about sins like like idolatry and lying and stealing and murder, but what about things like assuming someone's motives or complaining when you're sitting in traffic? What about mumbling judgments under your breath? What about envy or worldliness or sins of the tongue or just being unthankful? Lack of self-control. I mean, the list could go on. So just want to begin by just asking, how aware are you of the specific big sins, small sins, sins of omission and commission that reside in your life? Are you slightly aware? Acutely aware? Are you aware at all? Now, I know some of you in this room probably are very aware of the sin in your life, while others of you maybe are hardly aware at all. So I just want to remind us that the awareness we have of our sin is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes along and convicts the world of sin. So this is a gift. So if you are aware there's a hundred reasons you should fight condemnation. Here's one. Realize that any, any awareness you are of sins in your life is a gift from the Spirit of God. So that's number one, awareness. Number two, what is your heart attitude towards the sin in your life? What is your heart attitude towards a sin in your life? When you are aware of specific sins, small ones, big ones, omission, commission, How does your heart respond? In other words, are you casual about it? Do you feel guilt, but then do things to distract yourself from the guilt? Is your heart hard towards your sin? I read Acts this week. I love Acts 2.37. It says, when the people were aware of their sin, they were cut to the heart. When was the last time you felt cut to the heart over your sin, or grieved by your sin, or your heart broke over your sin? Is that an experience for you? A heartbreak, a grieving over your sin. And then lastly, number three, how do you respond to the sin in your life? How do you respond? What do you do when you're aware of it? So if you are aware of it, but your heart attitude is complacent, what do you do? Or if you're aware of it and your heart is fully engaged and you feel remorse and conviction, then what do you do? Do you do something? Is there a heart response? I mean, God's word is full of these. We're going to talk about them in a couple of weeks weave these into the message, but James tells us that we're to confess our sins to one another. In Colossians, we just finished saying, talks about put your sin to death, put it off, put it all away. I mean, Jesus went so far as to say, if you continue to sin, you're better off just puck, plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. I mean, it's radical. So what do you do when you're aware of it? What is your response? How do you attack your sin? How do you put it to death? Is your response to cry out to Jesus for forgiveness and grace and then have a, a plan for putting it to death? Well, maybe you're thinking, I don't really know how I respond. (laughs) Or, I never really thought about it before. Well, that's why we're doing what we're doing in this little series. To help us. 
to have categories to think in so that we can be set free from the sin that so easily entangles us. Now listen, I know this is not fun. The last thing we want to do is spend a couple weeks discussing sin and repentance. But we need to see that it's good for us. It's so good for us. After all, sin stinks. It messes up our lives. It keeps us from living in the freedom that we just sang about. And listen, your sin is no less real if you don't talk about it. (laughs) It doesn't like just go away or become less abrasive if we don't talk about it. No, I think we need to be aware of it and we need to learn how to cultivate a heart to respond to it, our hearts and active with it, and then how to respond to it so that we will not wander from Christ, so we will not drift from Jesus. So there the stage is set. Now what I want to do is I want to look at what is perhaps the saddest, scariest, most horrible example in the Bible of someone who was not aware of his sin, whose heart was hard towards his sin, and did not respond rightly to his sin. I want us to look at the life of King David. So turn to 2 Samuel 11 with me. 2 Samuel 11. Samuel is near the beginning of your Bible. If you split it in half and then start heading towards the front, you'll get there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. When you're there, say, got it. Got it? All right. 2 Samuel 11. Now, before I read, you've got to know something about King David. Okay, so let me tell you something about King David that you may or may not know. According to Deuteronomy 17, David would have handwritten a copy of the law. Now, some think that was just the book of Deuteronomy. Others think it was the first five books of the Old Testament. But he would have handwritten the entire thing. And then a Levitical priest would have approved the copy to make sure that he didn't delete or add anything that he thought would be to his advantage. And then the king would read his handwritten copy of the law over and over and over again. And Deuteronomy 17 tells us until he would learn the fear of the Lord. So he'd write it and then he'd read it over and over again. So listen, King David was very familiar with the Ten Commandments. Before we read this story, know that David knew the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. David knew the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. David knew the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire anything that is your neighbor's. So David knows these things, he's written those things, he's reread those things, and then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to to his house. When they told David, 
Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. In this story, sin just keeps piling up. Sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. I counted 13. 13 sins, 13 wrongs, 13 moments that David could have woken up and turned to the Lord. Here they are in short form. Number one, David remained in Jerusalem at the time when the kings go out to battle. He should have been at war. That was his duty as the king. And instead, he's home. Number two, what is David doing in bed at noon? Now, I'm all for afternoon naps. But that's included in the text for a reason. And the word couch there actually means bed. So I don't know what's going on there, but what's he doing there? Number three, he saw Bathsheba bathing and continued to gaze long enough to discern that she was a beautiful woman. So he engaged with his eyes in Bathsheba. Number four, David inquired about the woman. Number five, David sent messengers to get her. Number six, David took her. Number seven, David lay with her. Then David finds out she's pregnant. So number eight, what does David do? He sends for Uriah, not to confess his sin to Uriah, but to try to cover up his own sin. Number nine, David sends Uriah home, told him, clean up. And then he sends this present behind him. A bottle of wine, lingerie for Bathsheba, <laughs> something to encourage him to sleep with his wife. Number 10, he gets Uriah drunk. Number 11, he writes a letter to Joab so that Joab would put Uriah at the front of the battle. Number 12, Uriah is murdered and ultimately David is responsible. And number 13, David's corrupt use of power and authority as a king is abhorrent. Is it not? He's supposed to be the king protecting the people, caring for the people, and he uses his power in this absolutely horrific way. It just seems like the sins just keep piling up one after another. And what we have to notice from this story is even though it only took me a few minutes to read it, it may have taken weeks for this to unfold. Time passed. It wasn't like this all happened in a day. She's pregnant, but Uriah's dead. It's over. There was much time involved in this. Time. He, he inquires of her and he's got to wait for servants to go find out about her and come back. He, he sends messengers to get her. He has time to be thinking when they go to get her and bring her to him. He's processing what he is going to do. He sends for Uriah. Days maybe it took for Uriah to get from the battlefield back to the king's palace. Time to think. Time to contemplate what is going on. He writes a letter to Joab. Can you imagine writing that letter? Was his heart not beating out of his chest when he thought about what he was penning? The same hand that wrote 
thou shalt not murder is now penning, make sure Uriah dies? He had time. What was happening in his heart? Was David aware of his sin? Did David, he had plenty of time to consider his heart attitude towards his sin. He had plenty of time to respond all along the way and to repent of his sin. I'm wondering if David really wasn't aware of what was happening until at least stage one, he finds out Bathsheba's pregnant. And I'm sure he's going, oh no, now what do I do? That may have been his first wake up aha moment. But instead of confessing his sin, he's more concerned with protecting his reputation rather than cultivating conviction and repenting. I think he knew his reputation was on the line. He didn't want to lose face. He wanted to put his best foot forward. He wanted you to think how good he really is. Can you imagine thinking that way? (laughs) And now with Uriah dead and Bathsheba as his new wife, David believes he dodged a bullet. Dodged a bullet. That is, until Nathan comes along. That is, until Nathan exposes what he has done. Now, let me just say this. I've been a pastor for 27 years, and I can testify that more often often than not, it takes someone getting caught and humiliated before they are aware of their sin, have the right heart attitude, or respond appropriately. And I'm just going to pause here and say, please do not be like David. Don't wait until you get caught. But this is the case for David. In God's mercy, God sends Nathan to confront David in his sin. And so we read about that in chapter 12. Follow along with me. Chapter 12. And it, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Oh, may God send the right people to us when we need help seeing our sin. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of its morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he has done this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now, this little story is brilliantly crafted by God to not only expose David's sin, but so that he would feel the weight of his sin. So his heart would get engaged in this story so that he would feel the seriousness, the weightiness of his sin. And himself declaring the punishment, really, that his sin deserved. Surely he must die. This story really is is a setup. David is being sucked in both mentally and emotionally so that he would feel what he has done. But I think it's also written this way to suck in the reader. I think it's it's written this way not just for David, but it's recorded for us to draw us in. After all, when I read this story, when, when I read what we just read, the little lamb story, and I see David responding, I think to myself, how crazy is it that David could be so blind to his sin? I'm shocked. I'm actually utterly astonished that David's heart 
could be so greatly angered towards this little sheep stealer while his heart is completely unaffected by his own sin. I am perplexed at how quickly David declares he deserves to die, while the whole time he is letting himself completely off the hook. How? I mean, seriously, how could someone be so blind to their sin? How could someone be so hard-hearted, so self-righteous, so unrepentant? How could someone be so unaware of their sin? Yet the fact that this story raises, raises those questions in my mind exposes just how aware, unaware I am of my own sin. <laughs> and I think that's how the story unfolds. You've got to read it and go, what is your problem, David? So that you realize Nathan's not just talking to David. He's talking to the reader. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, how can you be so blind? We need to hear David's words to, Nathan's words to David, not just to David, but to us. We are the man. We're David in the story. We're as blind as him. So I think when Nathan says, you are the man, oh, it's meant for David. It's meant for the reader. And I think it is meant for me. It's meant for us. It's meant to awaken us to how blind, how hard-hearted, how unrepentant we can be of our own sin. I think it's meant to show us how in our lives, one little sin leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. So eventually we're completely unaware of even what's happening in our lives. And if David could be so unmoved by things like adultery, rape, and murder, how much more can you and I be unaware or unmoved or passive by our more polished, acceptable sins? Sins of the heart that no one else has to know about. See, it is amazing to me, for me, how keenly aware I can be of the sins of others while being completely blind to my own. It is amazing how quickly I can become outraged over the sins of others while being emotionally unmoved by my own sin. It's amazing how much we can desire action. Somebody needs to do something about their sin while at the same time taking no action to get rid of my own. I think we just need Nathan to look us in the eye and listen to him say, you are the man. You're the man. Well, Nathan has two more important things to say to David that get to the root of David's problem, which I find helpful because I think it helps us to see the seriousness and the root of our issue. If we turn back to chapter 12, I'm sorry, we're still in chapter 12. Chapter 12, look at verse 9 with me. Nathan's going to say two very pointed things to David. Chapter 12, verse 9, Nathan says this, Why? Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Why, David? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The word despised is the word for worthless. Nathan is saying to David, why? Why, David, have you treated the commandments of the Lord as worthless to you? Listen, when we sin against God, we are saying, God, your word and your ways are worthless to me. They're worth nothing to me. That's what we say in our sin. David's actions, what he was saying is, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, worthless to me. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, worthless to me. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, worthless to me. You shall, you shall not desire anything that your neighbors, worthless to me. That's what David's actions are declaring. And when we sin, whether we're aware of it or not, what we're saying is, God, your will and your way is worthless to me. When our heart is unmoved over our sin, what we're saying is, God, your ways are worthless to me. 
When we do nothing to take action against our sin, what we're saying is, God, your will and your word and your ways, worthless. Worthless. We also need to notice that David's sin is ultimately evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you see that? You did what is evil in his sight. And I know we've said this before, but it's good to be reminded again from God's word that first and foremost, sin is bad not because it takes you captive, not because it hurts others, but because it is evil against God. It's evil against him. And so Nathan's question to David and to us is, why? 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 Oh, that we would take time to reflect on ways we have sinned and just ask ourselves, why? Why would I consider God's way worthless? In what way did I just consider God's ways worthless? Why would I do evil in the sight of my God. And it isn't just God's word that Nathan, that David despised, but actually God himself. Look at verse 14. This is, David, this is Nathan's next statement to David. Verse 14. By this deed, verse 14, Nathan says, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. You have utterly scorned the Lord. The word scorn there is when we don't use, it's the word for despised. So, David, why have you utterly despised God? Why do you despise God? See, sin is a despising, not just God's word and God's ways, but it's despising God himself. It's saying, God, your way is worthless and I despise you. Now, obviously, when we're sinning, we're not saying those words out loud. We need to understand that what Nathan is doing is helping David see what's going on in his heart when he's sinning. When he's sinning, what's happening in there, that we need to feel the same weight of conviction so our hearts will be, will be cut like it needs to be, is to realize when we sin, we're despising God. We're despising him. And we're considering his word as completely worthless. So David receives this from Nathan. And then finally, in verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Wow. How sad it is that it took David so long and getting caught before he finally spoke the words of freedom. I have sinned against the Lord. Oh, if David had just spoken those words when he was standing on the rooftop looking down at Bathsheba. He could have spoken them like that. Totally different story. Instead, now David will deal with the consequences, as will his kingdom, for his sin. God has a response to David's acknowledgement of his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. What David should hear in response is the same consequences that he pronounced on the little man with the sheep, the sheep-stealing man, should be what he receives. He was very quick to angrily declare, that man must die. And I'm certain that when David said to the Lord, I have sinned, he knew that his own word should come back on him. Because certainly he was worthy of death. And yet what God says to David is perplexing. Slightly insane, troubling, amazing. So many thoughts go through our minds when we read what God says back to David. Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, 
The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Good news for David? Absolutely. Good news for us? Absolutely. But what about Bathsheba's mom? What about Uriah's dad? How do you think they feel about that statement? How do you feel about a God who doesn't seem to be very righteous? Just letting sin go. It's okay. Murder. Rape. A child's going to die. It's all right. You're forgiven. Let bygones be bygones. It's okay. See, we read that. We want to identify with David and go, oh, thank you, Lord. Forgiveness immediately. But this should also trouble us. Can God just say that? Like, forgiven. When all these other people have been sinned against in horrific ways? Where's the justice in those words? Well, that's the question really that the whole Testament's about. God forgiving sin without there really being a proper sacrifice for the sin to be forgiven. And that's the glory of the New Testament. So you need to turn over to Romans chapter 3. Because Romans chapter 3 solves the problem. If there is a problem, there should be a problem for us. There has to be justice. Sin must be punished. And if David's not receiving the punishment and getting off scot-free, then who's going to pay for it? So we go to Romans chapter 3. I'll start reading in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. That's a wrath remover. To be received by faith. And here's the sentence we're going for this morning. This was to show Jesus' death, his wrath-removing redemption, all of that was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. David's sins. That's the word in 2 Samuel. You're forgiven. They're passed over, David. We're going to pass over your sins. And yet here, justice happens. God vindicates his righteousness. And he says, look, all those sins that were formerly passed over in my divine forbearance, now I am proven to be righteous by putting my son forth as a propitiation by his blood so that through faith, sins of all the Old Testament people who put their faith in Christ could be forgiven. Oh, how good it is to live on this side of the cross and to know that God is not just trying to figure out some kind of way to make sure that your sins get forgiven. No, he took care of it. He took care of David's sins and every other Old Testament person who loved God. And he takes care of ours the same way. See, this shows the value and the worth of Christ. That in one man's death, he is worth so much that in that single death, all of the sins that were passed over in the Old Testament can be forgiven like that. That's the worth of Jesus. That's how valuable Christ is. We can almost say that's how horrible his death was that it could forgive all these horrible things that David did. And so we look to Christ and we say, Jesus, we thank you for giving us your righteousness. Look at verse 26. I love it. It was to show his righteousness. God showed off his righteousness by putting Christ forth and not letting those sins just get passed over. He did it at the present time so that he might be just. Our God is a just God. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're back 
where we started. Justification. We are justified by the one who was the propitiation and the redeemer of our sins so that by faith we can be forgiven like David. That is good news. That is good news. And that good news is meant to inform what I want to encourage us to do this week. I want to encourage us this week, I think we have Wednesday and Thursday, our reflection days in our Bible reading time. I would love to see us do this prior to then, but I would love for us to consider this week our own sin. What if we took time this week to just ask the Spirit to make us aware of where we are the man? Spirit, just where am I the man? What if we intentionally sought the Spirit so that we would be aware of our sin? What if we considered ways that we treat the Word of God as worthless? What if we desired the Spirit to help our hearts to be soft and to see where we have utterly despised God. Just sat alone for a while, notebook, pen. Spirit, just show me. Show me. How good would it be for us to spend some time doing that and then just to very simply declare the words that David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. My prayer is that this week we would become more aware of our sin and that our hearts would be stirred and cut over our sin. And perhaps even take some action toward our sin. On your days off this week, your Wednesday and Thursday from a reading plan, I encourage you to read Psalm 51. Because it appears here that David just says, I've sinned against the Lord, and then forgiveness. Psalm 51 tells us the agony and the struggle and the heart work and the repentance that David put into those words. And so I encourage you, get alone, get your Bible, turn to Psalm 51, consider these questions, and just acknowledge where we've sinned against the Lord. And then next week, we're going to study Psalm 51 together. We're going to let Psalm 51 examine us next Sunday. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about what does it look like to repent? What does repentance look like? What are the things that God calls us to do? What are practical, just things we can do in our lives to help put our sin to death? So read Psalm 51 this week. Ask God to work it into your heart, and then next week we will read it together. Let's pray. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, how absolutely joy-giving is the reality that you put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Thank you, Jesus, that right now we do not have to worry about your wrath, your anger. We don't have to worry that you're slightly perturbed at us. Thank you, Jesus, for hanging on the cross and hanging there long enough for the sky to turn black so that you could receive all of the furious wrath that we deserved. And we thank you, God, for being a righteous God and a just God. If you weren't righteous and just, we would be living in a chaotic world and we would be headed towards a heaven that would be very uncertain. So we praise you for being just. We praise you for being righteous. We praise you for making a way for you to be both just and the justifier. We thank you for the death of Christ 
pays the penalty for all our sin so that we can hear those beautiful words that our sin has been atoned for. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. There's nothing we can do to add to that. Thank you for that. We can repent until we're blue in the face and it will not add anything to your finished work. And we acknowledge that before you. And so Jesus, in response to what you've done for us and for our good and for your fame and your glory, help us this week. Help us, I pray. Spirit, we need you to make us aware of our sin. And we need you, Spirit, to make our hearts soft towards you and feel the things that it needs to feel over our sin. And then, Lord, help us to know what actions, what things you might want us to do, how you want us to respond to your Spirit working in our hearts. God, I pray protection against condemnation. And we believe there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we do this out of love for you, out of a desire to please you more, out of a desire to honor your word and to honor your name. And so, Spirit, be with us and help us. May we be both a broken people and a joyful people. May we grieve over our sin with radical rejoicing over our forgiveness. God, I pray both would be true in our hearts this week. Do a good work in us. And Lord, as, as we meet in our groups of three this week, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be humble. Help us to be not scared and help us not to hide. Help us to be honest with one another and share things with one another so we can be more set free from our own sins. Jesus, work and move among us, we pray. We want to please you more. We want to love you more. Thank you for making it possible for us to be set free from all the bondage of sin. Thank you, Jesus. We're not fighting alone somehow. You already did the work, and we have the power of your resurrection running through our veins. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope that we have. We love you. We love you, Jesus. Help us now to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.